Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To all of the parents who sometimes keep their kiddos in the service, if you couldn't tell from the reading, we're going to talk an awful lot about sexuality today. And so that is your warning. I think we're staying PG, but you never know. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to be able to talk through and answer every question that's caused uh, as we talk about Christian sexual ethics. I do want to remind everybody, and many of you weren't here at the time, but back in 2015, ages ago, right, we did an entire series entitled Sex, Sin, and a Savior. I think it's comprised of nine sermons in which we tried to unfold and unpack uh, a, a total picture of biblical sexuality. And so I would point you to those sermons as resources if you're left with lingering questions after today, or I'm happy to sit down with anybody over coffee and talk through further how what the Bible has to say about sexuality is good news. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace. We need your spirit who inspired this word to illuminate it for us so that we might not just see what is true, but why it's good and beautiful and be transformed by it. I pray that your spirit would be at work doing that through the word today. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, for his glory. Amen. So if you haven't already, I invite you to open to 1 Corinthians 6, as the Apostle Paul continues to call the Corinthian Christians away from blending in with their culture. That's what they have been doing, and he's calling them to be set apart as saints. That's what the word saint simply means, is to be set apart. And so far in chapters five and six, we've seen Paul apply that call to some specific areas in which the Corinthians are confused. Uh, areas in which they've spent their entire life trying to mimic the socially elite in their city. And today we see that one of the areas they've been looking up to the elite and trying to live like they do, one of those areas is sexuality. And to be honest, uh, the confusion that the Corinthians have right here, it kind of reminds me of the Little Mermaid. I don't 
don't know why I'm on a movie kick. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know I've used movies a lot for illustrations. That's not normal for me, but here we are. I digress. Reminds me of The Little Mermaid. That's the first movie I remember seeing in theaters back in 1989 when yours truly was all of six years old and Ursula freaked me out. Like it's burned in my memory. But it's not the scary sea witch that reminds me of 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, It's Scuttle, the seagull. Uh, If you've seen the movie, you know that Ariel, the mermaid, she loves to collect items from the human world. And Scuttle, the seagull, he is a trusted voice in her life uh, to tell her what these items are and what they're to be used for. He's a trusted voice because he himself can actually venture into the human world. So surely that kind of perspective, that kind of superior knowledge, education, means he knows what he's talking about. And I remember as a kid laughing out loud early on in the movie when Scuttle holds up a fork and proudly declares that it is a dingle hopper. And humans use it to straighten their hair. Later on in the movie, after Ariel is magically given legs, she finds herself at a fancy dinner, and I laughed even harder when she picked up the fork beside her plate and proudly began brushing her hair as if she knew exactly what this dingle hopper was for. That's what reminds me of the Corinthians right here in chapter 6. When it comes to sexuality, the Corinthians haven't listened to a seagull, obviously, but they have listened to the socially elite in their city. And for the same reason that Ariel listened to Scuttle, because surely the socially elite know what they're talking about with their superior knowledge, education, philosophy, perspective on life. Surely they can tell us not what a fork is for, although they could do that with all their fancy dinners, but surely they could also tell us what the body is for. Surely the socially elite, if anybody, would be able to provide clarity about sexuality, but... Like the Little Mermaid, the Corinthians were not actually being provided with clarity, but confusion. And confusion that they proudly embraced, as if they knew exactly what their bodies and sexuality were for. But Shades, Paul, Paul wants them to see, and he wants us to see that the call to be saints, it applies even here. Like our sexuality is to be set apart to the Lord. For our bodies belong to him. We are not our own. We were made, created. Only the maker can provide us with clarity amidst all of our culture's confusion about the body and sexuality and shades we need. We need this clarity just as much in the 21st century as Corinth needed it in the first. We need this clarity. Need it. Because the clarity about sexuality that the Bible provides, it's not just true. I promise you, it's good news. It is good news. See it with me. Begin reading with me in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. There's four things that we need to see throughout this entire passage from verse 12 to 20, and right here we're seeing number one. Number one, the Corinthians' confusion. That's what's coming to the surface in verse 12. The Corinthians' 
confusion. Paul sums up their confusion by quoting a popular Corinthian saying, you see quotes around that beginning phrase right there in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. It's a quote. That was, it, it was like a, a popular motto amongst the Corinthian elite. Uh, and they used it to justify what scholar Bruce Winter calls the unholy trinity of gluttony, drunkenness, and sexual immorality. The, the, Corinthians, the, the Corinthian elites, they, they love to throw uh, extravagant banquets uh, to put their social status on display. You can, you can think of it kind of the way that people may throw like an extravagant uh, wedding reception, to kind of display their social standing and, and status. But they did this all the time, invited all of their friends, and, and at these parties, they indulged their stomach's appetite to the point of excess, and then for the after party, they indulged their sexual appetites through prostitution. In other words, the host with his wealth would purchase food, wine, and sex. Because for the elites, all things are lawful for me. Unlike the poor who can't afford this kind of indulgence. I can, so why not? Like My body desires these things. My stomach gets hungry, so why not eat? My body gets, I don't know that I can say that without really disappointing my mother. So why not satisfy that appetite? Paul has told us that some of the Corinthians, not all of them, but some of them within the church are amongst these socially elite who would have been accustomed to throwing these kinds of parties. At the beginning of chapter 5, did we not meet a man who uh, was wealthy, elite, and as a result of what he believes to be his freedom that his wealth and status grant him, he was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. Like, is it any wonder that that man would think his incestuous relationship with his stepmother was okay? As a part of the elite, he would claim, all things are lawful for me. And do you remember what Paul said in chapter 5, that, that that kind of attitude has the the potential to spread like leaven through a loaf. And I think that's at least part of what we're seeing right here in chapter 6. Because what we'll find as we read through this passage is that there are other men in the Corinthian church justifying their own sexual immorality. That attitude's spreading. And they're using this refrain that they learned from the elite to do so. These other men, they could have been amongst the social elite too, or they could be invitees to these parties I'm trying to use such an occasion to climb the social ladder, so i got to participate just like everybody else does. It's possible, it's possible that these men were even putting a theological spin on this popular saying of all things are lawful for me. Now let's just baptize that philosophy right into the church. It's possible that they were saying something along the lines of that uh, because of the grace of God that will forgive me anyway. I can indulge in anything. All things are lawful for me. Shades, the Corinthians are confused. Grace doesn't set us free to sin. It sets us free from sin. Grace doesn't set you free to be your own Lord. Decide what to do with all of me. No, grace sets you free from the lie that being your own Lord is some kind of freedom. 
The Corinthians are confused. And Paul counters their confusion with clarity. Look at verse 12 again. All things are lawful for me, but, Paul responds, not all things are helpful. In other words, Corinth, everything that your culture says is okay, not all of it will help you follow Jesus. Not all of it will help you look more like Christ. In fact, a lot of it will try to replace him as Lord of your life. That's what Paul says in the second half of the verse. Look at it. He quotes the saying again and responds again. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The, the Corinthians believed that the, the man who could do whatever he wanted to was truly free. Anything less would be slavery. But Paul, Paul says many of the things that you are free to do are the very things that will enslave you, dominate you, rule you. And one of the most addicting things we know scientifically, sexuality. Corinth, you can say all things are lawful for me, but you're confused. That assumes that you are Lord of your own life and that you know what's best for your body and sexuality, when in reality, much of what you have embraced is unhelpful and leads to enslavement to sin. That's what Paul is saying in shades. We've got to ask, are we not the same? Are we not in the same position of the Corinthians, the, the position of the little mermaid with her fork? proudly proclaiming that we know what our body and sexuality are for. And we act as our own Lord, free to do anything, not realizing that's actually slavery. We act as our own Lord, forgetting the Lord who created our body and our sexuality with a purpose and a design of what it's for. This is the second thing we need to see in our passage this morning. We've seen the Corinthians' confusion. Now, number two, the creation connection. The creation connection. Let's read verses 13 to 14. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You notice quotation marks again at the beginning of verse 13, showing us that Paul is quoting the Corinthians again, another saying amongst them. Food is meant for the bot, for the stomach, and the stomach for food. Now, if you're reading along in the ESV, which is what I'm using right here, that's where your quotation ends. But you need to know there are no quotation marks in Koine Greek, the original language in which the New Testament was written in. Quotation marks have been added by our translators to help us understand what's going on in the text. And there is a disagreement among scholars about where this quotation ends. And I find the arguments more convincing that the quote includes the rest of the sentence. Food, in other words, I think this is the Corinthian quote. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. There's a lot of reasons I think that that's the full quote, but the main reason is it makes the most sense of the Corinthians argument and Paul's counter argument because it makes them perfectly parallel. You can lay them side by side. This is what the Corinthians are saying, and then in the next verse, Paul's 
countering it point for point. See that with me. See the Corinthians argument. They start out, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Easy enough to understand. They're saying these things, stomach, food, clearly designed to go together. My stomach desires to be satisfied. And here's food to satisfy that desire. Why would I deny myself? You can see pretty quickly where this analogy is going. Sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. These things go together. My body has desires. And here's sex to satisfy that desire. My body needs it. Why, Why would I deny myself of it? The, the Corinthians right here, I, I hope you can see this. The Corinthians simultaneously have too high and too low of a view of sex and sexuality. Too high of a view because this is something I can't function without. My body has a need for it. I've got to have it. Too low of a view because it's just a bodily function. That's all it is, just like the stomach consuming food. And Shades, I submit to you that this is still the mistake that our culture makes today. Listen to Pastor Andrew Wilson. He says, our culture sees sex as everything one minute. How can you live a full life without it? And as nothing the next. Why does it even matter who we have sex with? Too high and too low a view. Sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. That's not where their argument ends. I told you I believe their quotation goes on. Further, they say that when it comes to food in the stomach, God will destroy both one and the other. What does that mean? We need to dip back into Platonic philosophy for just a moment. I know everybody's favorite topic at 10.30 in the morning. Plato back in the day taught that the soul was immortal, imprisoned in the body. He didn't have a great positive view of the body, old Plato. But the body was something that would be disposed of. It was a temporary housing. Only the soul was eternal. By the time you get to the first century, the sophists have picked up this teaching and they've morphed it. They've added a little bit of a hedonistic flair. Hedonism is I just need to pursue pleasure at all costs. So basically, this is what the sophists would say. Like Plato said, the body is temporary. So it can only be enjoyed in this life. Thus, all of its desires must be indicators of things that are meant to be enjoyed. Don't deny yourself. Indulge while you can. This is what the Corinthians believe. They put a Christian spin on it. God will destroy the stomach and the food, the body and sex, all this physical stuff. It's only temporary. Only the soul is immortal. We're going to see very clearly that's what they believe by the time we get to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great chapter on the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, which the Corinthians have rejected completely. The body's temporary. Only the soul is eternal, so have fun in the flesh while you can. Nothing you do in your body affects your immortal soul anyway. There's a dichotomy between the two. Body's all temporary. That shades, that's the story the Corinthians believed about their body and sexuality. And here, here's 
what I think is at the heart of what Paul is communicating this morning, what I, what I want us to see is that we all believe a story. We all believe a story, and whatever story we believe shapes the way that we treat our bodies and our sexuality. It's not arbitrary. That's how the world tends to think about sexual ethics. It's just a bunch of arbitrary rules of what you're not supposed to do. Thus, Christians are just a bunch of prudes trying to keep you from fun. Is that the truth? Or do we just believe a different story, a better story? It is actually good news. Is, is my body really some discardable, temporary thing that doesn't matter, so enjoy it while you can? Or is it something designed for eternity, endowed with more value than I can possibly imagine? In, a, in his brilliant little book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With, uh, by Sam Albury, I highly recommend it. Why does God care who I sleep with? In, in that book, Sam Alberry compares how we view our sexuality to how we view cars. The more valuable the car, the more we take care of it. He says, if I, as a Christian, am particular about how I use my body, you might think it's because I have a low view of physical intimacy, because I think it's disgusting or demeaning in some way. That's so what we were talking about just a second ago, right? How people can, the world views Christian sexual ethics as very prudish or old-fashioned. It cracks me up when people call Christian ethics old-fashioned because all it takes is just a really brief dive into history to know that Christian sexual ethics have always been out of step with secular ethics. Read Cicero. In like 120 to 46 BC is when this Roman statesman is alive. And he talks about how anyone that would deny the proper use of prostitution are prudes. And out of step with the times. That's, that's the first century BC. The truth is not that Christian sexual ethics are old-fashioned. The truth is that Christian sexual ethics are the only sexual revolution the world has ever seen. The only thing that's ever challenged the way we all naturally think. That's what historian Kyle Harper observes in his work about the history of views on sexuality. Anyway, I digress again. What were we talking about? Sam Alberry talking about the value of our bodies. If I if I'm particular about the way I use my body, you might think it's because I have a low view of physical intimacy because it's disgusting or demeaning in some way. Actually, it's because I think of bodies, mine, yours, and everyone's, like convertibles, not like beat-up trucks. I'm particular about physical intimacy not because I value it so little, but because I value it so much. What would lead Sam to value his body and sexuality so differently? Could it be a different story? Look at Paul's argument with me. And the rest of verse 13. See how it parallels and counters the Corinthian story. Paul says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. 
Corinth, if you want to know what your body is for, you've got to look at what it was created for. It was created for the Lord. In other words, for his glory. And everything that it does is bent towards that end. Paul goes Genesis on us. This is the Genesis story that we are made in the image of God, made to reflect his glory. And our sexuality is an intimate part of that design because if you read Genesis 1.27, when we are made in the image of God, we are specifically made in his image, male and female. That's attached to our being made in his image. We're made that way so that we might mimic what God himself does. God himself is a triunity. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. They're each distinct, perfectly unified. Father's not the Son, Son's not the Spirit, so forth and so on, but perfectly unified as one God. And out of this triune unification of love, unity and difference, comes the creation of life. God has made mankind to mimic him in that way. Male and female, distinct, different, not interchangeable, but able to be united in love and produce life in a way that reflects the glory of the creator. Our sexuality is attached to our being made in God's image for his glory so that we may be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image, fill the earth with that glory. From the beginning, our bodies are part of an incredible story. And specifically, our sexuality plays a powerful part in telling that story. Because our sexuality wasn't just designed for reproduction. It was designed for that, and that's part of the story that it's telling. But it's also designed to tell us a story about desire. Genesis 2 and verse 18, we read, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And what does God do? He takes a rib from Adam and he makes Eve. And when Adam sees her, he sings. First words of mankind in scripture and it's poetry. Dude's a romantic. Sees Eve, this at last. At last, you got to realize earlier in this chapter, Adam has had all of creation paraded before him and no match has been found for him. And now he beholds Eve. This at last. This is what I've been after. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's the same stuff as me. There's a connection. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She's distinct from me. Not the same thing. Unity. Indifference. Imaging forth God and who he is. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In other words, they shall become one again. Woman was taken out of man. And through marriage, they're brought back together, made one, even as they give themselves to each other. This is why, this is why sexuality is wrapped up with deep desire for in our bones, we all ache for connection. Connection that will satisfy what feels incomplete and and 
broken. We're, we're all filled with longing, desiring to be able to say with Adam, this at last is what I've been longing for. This at last is what fits with me. This at last is what completes my story. And, and shades, can you see the, that marriage and sexuality, all of that was designed to actually point to a greater story about our desire for intimacy. For we were ultimately created for connection with our creator. All our desires are, are echoes of our deepest desire for him. The story of Adam and Eve, it's a pointer to the story of God and his people. This is all over scripture, all throughout Old Testament, New Testament. God is pictured as a husband and his people are pictured as a bride. This is why we have husbands and wives to tell a smaller story about the greater story of the universe. You hear this all over the place. Hear it in one of my favorite places to hear it is in, is in this echo. Beautiful line from the Song of Solomon, chapter six and verse three, displaying the beautiful love between a husband and wife. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. What does that sound like? Sounds like Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. I am my beloved's. And my beloved's is mine. We still echo that language in modern weddings. This is where it comes from. I take you to be mine. My wife. I take you to be my husband. Throughout scripture, God is pictured as a husband, his people as a bride, and our deepest desires will only be met in that marriage. As beautiful as the smaller picture of marriage is, it's only a pointer, it's only an echo. I, I, I want to tell Adam, when he says this at last, I'm like, almost. This at last, almost. It's a pointer, Adam to what will truly make you say that one day. Every married person in here knows that marriage doesn't actually quench your deepest desires. We, we all know that even sex doesn't ultimately satisfy because all of these things were designed as small stories to point to the greatest story of good news. I want to quote Sam Alberry one more time. He, he talks about how even Hollywood knows this on some level that all of these small stories, small romances that we have point to some greater reality, some deeper truth. Think about the way that Hollywood tells a love story. Think about the movie. You know, you got your meet cute, then you're going to have conflict at some point, but how's it end? It ends with the couple getting together, reconciling, finding each other, getting married, whatever it is. Fade to black, roll credits problem is, as we all know, that happily ever after is not actually something that comports with reality. Sam Alberry, we all know that real life doesn't work like this. So why do we tell stories like it? Because somewhere deep down, we can't abandon the notion that real life is somehow meant to work like this. Despite all the realities of life we see around us, 
We find it hard to shake the notion that there's a love out there that can fix everything, fix even us. In other words, these small stories point to the deeper, truer, greater story. There is one that will satisfy the desire of your soul and intimate love that fills every part of you that empty. There is one Savior that one day you will see and say, this at last, this at last is the one I need. Jesus, you were created for connection with him. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, the body is meant for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. In other words, he's what satisfies. Not food, not sex, him. That's where our story begins, Shades. We were created for that connection, and that is also where our story will end. Look at verse 14. Paul says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul's countering the Corinthian belief that God will one day destroy the body and the stomach and food and all that kind of stuff, he's countering that with the reality that God will one day raise the body. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. His death was in our place, paying the penalty of death that our sin deserved. So just as he was raised, one day we shall be too, forever to live with him in new creation. My, my flesh fully satisfied with the true delight for which it was designed, connection with my creator. Shades, you were created for this. You've been redeemed for this, which is the next thing that Paul wants us to see. This is number three. We've seen the Corinthian confusion, creation connection. Number three, the redemption reunion. The redemption reunion. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Remember, this is, this is what the Corinthian elite and their invitees were doing at these dinner parties. Paul says, you should never do that. Or do you not know, verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies, Corinth, right now, you've been redeemed. Your bodies are members of Christ. In other words, we were created for connection with our creator, yet we were separated from him by sin. But now we're reunited through redemption. Redemption reunion. Paul, Paul right here, he's drawing on the story of Adam and Eve. You can hear that in his quote from Genesis chapter 2. Remember we talked about how Eve was taken out of Adam, and they are reunited in a one flesh union. That smaller story points to the larger story of redemption as we are reunited with God through Christ. That's the story our sexuality was designed to tell, which is why Paul tells Corinth, don't use your sexuality to tell a different story. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
He hasn't just saved your soul, Corinth. Through redemption, all of you has been reunited with him. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, because that's a totally different story. One where my body is temporary with no eternal meaning. A story where my sexuality is only there for me to get a feeling. It's a self-centered story where other people are mere objects for my sexual fulfillment. That's the opposite. It's the opposite of a story in which my sexuality is, is the consummation of commitment to another person that I'm giving my whole self to, and they are giving their whole self to me. That's a story in which sexuality is aimed at giving, not taking. It's a story where sexuality is aimed at loving, not, not lusting. And And if I've been redeemed by Christ, reunited with him in a spiritual union, that's what Paul says, he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. If that's my story, then all of me, including my body, belongs to that story. And I find fulfillment in telling it. In the coming chapters... Shades, we don't have time to tease this out today, but in the coming chapters, we are going to see how we presently use our sexuality, whether married or single or wherever, we are going to see how our sexuality bears witness to that story. But right here, right here, Shades, can you see that if we are connected to Christ, we cannot use our bodies, our sexuality, to tell a different story. It's the fourth and final thing we need to see. Number four, the clear conclusion. The clear conclusion. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul says, don't use your body to tell a different story. Flee sexual immorality. Because Corinth, what you do with your body matters. The Corinthians don't think so. We can see that because Paul quotes them again. Look at the first part of the verse. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. I think that's another Corinthian quotation. And I think that because the word other, it's not there in Greek. That's that's the translators trying to make sense of the verse, but it makes perfect sense as a Corinthian quotation if you leave that word out because it summarizes what we've already seen the Corinthians believe. And I further believe it's a Corinthian quotation because then Paul immediately counters it, just like he's done with every other Corinthian quotation thus far. Let me show you what I mean. What do they believe? Every sin a person commits is outside the body. In other words, what you do with your body doesn't matter. Because only your soul is immortal. The body's just a physical thing. It doesn't have anything to do with something spiritual like sin. So you can eat what you want, drink what you want, sleep with who you want, all you want. All things are lawful for me because sin is something separate from the body. But Paul counters. No. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body because your body matters. Now. And for eternity, it's been redeemed to tell a better story. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. Do you see the story Paul is telling throughout this chapter? You were created by God, redeemed by Christ, indwelt by the Spirit. Your body is a temple of the triune God. It's sacred space. Which is why abuse and assault are way more than a physical violation. We all know that, deep in our bones. The world can't explain why that is, but we know that. We know that because it's not just something physical that has happened when we are assaulted or abused. Pastor and author Glenn Shrivener says it this way. He says, the pain of sexual assault is not the pain of a grazed knee. In other words, it's not just something physical. It's not just the pain of a grazed knee, but the trauma of holy space being desecrated. Maybe our bodies are less like playthings and more like temples. Yes. Our bodies were meant to be a place of glory. That's what a temple is. That's why Paul concludes, so glorify God in your body. That's it's a better story. It's the only one that satisfies our deepest desires, even the desires of our body, they will only, our desires will only be truly satisfied by doing what they were created for, glorifying the Lord. Shades, shades, don't be confused. You were created for that, created for glorifying the Lord. You were redeemed from the, for that. Paul makes that clear. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, the very blood of Christ. You're not a slave to sin and self. You remember the way he put it back up in verse 11 that we covered last week? Right after he talks about the lifestyles of sexual morality, Colin among the Corinthians, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. In other words, where there was sin, where each and every one of us have failed sexually, shades, every last one of us is sexually broken. And Paul is saying right here, where he, he's basically saying what we often sing. Where there was sin, God's love rushed in. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Not to set us free to sin, but to set us free from it. You were bought with a price, the blood of Christ. You were bought by him, for him, that, that is freedom. That's the freedom we had in original creation, and it's ours again in redemption. Shades, being my own Lord, that's not freedom. That's the very definition biblically of enslavement to sin. It's Satan in his original lie that convinces us that that's freedom. Don't, don't fall for that lie that the enemy has been spinning since the beginning. No, Christ has bought us with his blood out of slavery to sin and self that we might know the freedom of being his. Shades, you are not your own. It's like we heard earlier in the assurance of pardon in the first answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So glorify God in your body. That's what it was created for. A body's not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. 
And thus sexual immorality won't satisfy the desires of your body. That story is a lie. The Lord alone satisfies. The body's for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Like food satisfies the stomach, the Lord satisfies you, all of you. That's something that only he can do. Something that he alone has done by purchasing you. Shades. May we tell that story, tell that good news. We are not our own. Pray with me. Father, I am grateful for the clear truth of your word and how it sets us free from scraping around in the dark, trying to satisfy our own longings to reveal the only thing that truly can. You, the thing that every desire we have points us back to. Lord, I ask, I pray that we would be a people who do not sit in judgment over the world trying to police their sexuality, but simply tell them a better story by the way we live with ours. We tell them the greatest story that you alone satisfy. That every desire they have is really just an echo of a desire for you. And the greatest freedom they can ever have is not being their own, but belonging body and soul to our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.